rapid onset gender dysphoria. Have you heard of that medical condition? Rapid onset gender dysphoria. It's a phenomenon that is on the rise, massively on the rise in our society, especially among teenage girls, other folks too, but especially among teenage girls, where without any prior history, without any prior notice, without any kind of indication beforehand, suddenly this person does not understand, does not feel they're in the right body, that they have this gender dysphoria, this discordance between what their, what their body is and what they feel like they are, rapid onset gender dysphoria. It's a big phenomenon. Um, if I can translate it for you, it's just like everything else, everything else in a 13-year-old's life. Um, all of my friends are experiencing this, so I should be experiencing this also. But it's a big problem. Do you know that for those who are 13 to 18 years old, 13 to 18-year-old girls, the, the incidence of rapid-onset gender dysphoria has risen over 1,000% in the last 10 years. 1,000% in the last 10 years. Have you read much research on this? Have you uh, had many stories come across the news about this uh, phenomenon that's occurring? No? Isn't that a little bit odd? I want you to ask yourself, I mean, when do you have a medical condition that rises over 1,000% and you don't read about, oh, let's do longitudinal studies. Let's, let's make sure we understand what's going on here. You don't. Because you're not only not allowed to research it, apparently you're not allowed to talk about it. Our society has something, has some woes here, really about, about identity, doesn't it, that are going on. And people aren't really, you know, focusing on it, but it's there. A real problem with identity. What we've been doing here at Ironworks Church is reading through the Song of Songs. And we've been listening to the voice of the Shulamite bride, and she has been giving us very countercultural proclamations about romantic relationships. Right? She's been talking to us about romantic relationships and what they should be. And in fact, it's, it, just about everything she's saying is countercultural. We saw how she said, you know, romantic relationships are supposed to be about exclusive devo devotion exclusive devotion, long-as-life devotion. And, of course, that's countercultural to what romantic relationships are today, you know? And as the hookup culture matures into the polyamorous culture, and they will, we will see more carnage in relationships as people just grow up. The people from the hookup culture just grow up, and you will see more of an emphasis on polyamory and... and and go moving in that direction. This is, this is very counter to that trend, what we're reading in the Song of Solomon, that romantic relationships are to be exclusively devoted. And at the same time, she says, marriage, which is what she's pointing us towards, should be adamantly physical. We saw last week that there is to be an adamant physicality to a marriage. And you know, if that's not countercultural, at least it's culturally silent. We don't read about passion or hear about the passion that exists in marriage that's there to be in marriage, the eroticism that's inside of marriage. And today, we're going to look at another part of her call, the, what we're getting 
from this, this book, The Voice of the Shulamite Woman, as she tells us that romantic relationships are to be gendered, intergendered. And again, we know, we can tell, this is, this is countercultural, uh, because the song is heavily gendered as we read through its images. Um, when I say that word gender and emphasize it, some, of, some people here might be uncomfortable with that. Like you might hear this word gender, you, you listen to how it's used, you might not even like it or, or feel comfortable with it. Let me explain how I'm using the word when I say gender. When I say gender, what I'm referring to is the dual nature of our humanity. Okay, there is a, there is a sexual polarity to us. We come in two flavors, right? But it's something beyond that that, we, that, that goes beyond what we share with animals. You know, even plants and animals have a sexual polarity. Animals obviously have uh, male and female. But when I'm saying gender, I'm saying something that goes beyond that, as if the, the animals were sort of God's prototype for what he wanted to do in relationship with us who are made in his image. And that thing that goes beyond, certainly our bodies point to, but goes beyond our bodies to our very souls, it's that thing that I mean when I say gender. I don't know if there's a better word for it. That's just what I use. <clears throat> and our bodies are part of it, as Pastor Darren said so beautifully in a sermon a few weeks ago. He said, you know, our bodies are actually gifts that we give to one another. We're, we're given bodies to give to one another. And that's, that's very much the case in a biblical view. But there's something beyond that. It's like the bodies are signposts. They point us to the different ways that we love each other in intergendered relationships. They point us to how to be gifts to one another. And this, friends, I'll tell you, is the Christian answer to society's woes. Society's woes about identity. Because what's happening now with rapid onset gender dysphoria and general wide-scale uh, gender dysphoria is entirely predictable. It would have been entirely predictable if you looked ahead when people started to minimize gender in a relationship. And when people started to say, well, there's not really a difference there. There's not really a distinction with men and women in relationship. And uh, whether you said, you know, that's just true of men and women in general, or you said that's why we should have uh, monogendered unions or same-sex marriage, like uh, it's, it's commonly called. What, however we, we did that, it was entirely predictable where, we were, where society was going to go from there. Why? Because gender, according to the scriptures, we'll see, is about relationship. That's what gender is for. It's about relationship. When you lose gender in relationship, you lose gender. And when you lose gender, you lose identity. So the Bible's answer to our woes here about identity is exactly opposite. It's exactly backwards from what our society is telling us today. What is the society saying to us? It's saying you, you should choose your gender based on who you are. You should go into a room and figure out who you are, and then you should choose your gender based on that. The Bible is exactly the opposite. The Bible says, no, we find out who we are through our God-given gender. You see, it's exactly the opposite way, backwards. And so the Shulamite bride is here today to tell us 
as we listen to her voice in the song, that we need to understand gender to find out who we really are, that we need relationship to know who we are. And before we were about to read, before we read, I just want to make one point about what we're going to read. Like at the beginning of chapter two, you'll notice that the woman, for example, she says, I'm a lily. I'm a lily. And you say, well, where did she get that understanding? It actually comes in the next verse. We find out where she understood she was a lily from because he says to her, you're a lily. <laughs> you're a lily to me. That's what you mean to me. That's what I see when I look at you. So right there, chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 2, we get how relationships help us to know who we are. It happens first in our families of origin, as we have relationships in our families of origin, and, and hopefully if they're healthy relationships, we come to know who we are. Then in our church bodies, through the relationships we have there, we come to know who we are. And then if we marry intensely, um, we find out in our marriages who we are. And so what we're going to be learning about here is how the gift of gender in operation helps us to identify ourselves. Please stand if you are able, if you're comfortable doing that, to read with me from the Song of Songs. I'm going to be reading selections from the song. And we're going to be doing what we're doing there. We're going to, I'm going to be reading, it's going to be a little bit of a longer reading today because I want us to enter into the imagery. I want us to fear, feel the literary, um, the literary skill here of what's going on as we are listening to this proclamation, listening to this voice. So I'm going to be reading some verses uh, from a few different chapters. And I'll start in chapter 1 with verse 4. If you're following along, we can, you can follow along on the screen or in your, in your Bibles. I'll be reading from the ESV version. Okay, Song of Songs, chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark but lovely, O the daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like the one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd tents. In chapter 2, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. 
I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks to me and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing is come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its fruits, the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove. In the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, your face is lovely. Then in chapter 7, verse 11, come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see where the vines have budded, where the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, who used, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then to verse 6 of chapter 8. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And to verse 10. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourself comfortable. So let me establish, I guess perhaps I need to, that there is a gender distinction going on here, even in the imagery, in the beautiful images and metaphors that the song uses, we see there is a distinction between the man and the woman. Let's start there. Look at the animals that they are compared to. So if you're looking at chapter two, you'll notice that there's different animals that they use to describe each other when they're looking at each other. Both of their eyes are like doves. At different points, they both, both are talking about their eyes, and their eyes are like doves. When you're talking about her, what is she described as in chapter 2? Who can, who can uh, see that in chapter 2? Anybody? What animal is she? Anybody? She is a dove. You know, so they're both of them, they're... they're Images are, are wide-ranging when they're talking about their eyes. They're both doves. But you're talking about her. Verse, verse 14, chapter 2, she's a dove. Chapter 6, verse 9, she's a dove. Whereas, what is he described as? 
in chapter 2. Anybody see what, what animal comes out for him? Gazelle or a stag, right? A gazelle or a stag. So he's a gazelle bounding across the mountains, a stag. You know, she's a dove. There's a difference there. Why? If you pass beyond the animals to, you know, beyond the fauna to the flora, you look at the vegetables that they're compared to, the vegetation that they're compared to. You see a distinction. Even right there at the beginning of chapter 2, you look at verses 2 and 3. What is she? You call it out? She's a lily. What is he in the very next verse? He's an apple tree. Okay, not, maybe not what you would expect, not what the, the Song of Songs is very unexpected in what they do, but there's a distinction there. Okay, he, she is never an apple tree. He is never a lily. She's a lily. He's an apple tree. What are, we, what are we seeing? That they mean something different to each other. They mean different things. Go beyond the flora and fauna to artifacts because, you know, throughout the song also, it's kind of fun. You can kind of go through the song, do a study, and see what each of them are compared to and their body parts, and it's fascinating. But sometimes they're described as things that are made by humanity, right? And throughout the song, what do we see? That she's a wall, chapter 2. She's a door. She's a fountain. She's a city. She's a seal. And mostly, especially, she's a garden. She is these places of residence. Seven times in the song, she's a garden. Whereas when you look at him and look at the artifacts that he's described as, we didn't read, but like in chapter, I think in chapter um, five it is, talk about how his, he's encrusted with sapphires. His, his arms are gold. He's described in metallic terms. And this is a distinction that we see in their imagery. Why? These distinctions point us forward, do they not, beloved, to distinguishing men and women in relationship, right? Something s simple to understand. But what are the distinctions? Okay, and that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? That is the question that we need to know to love each other well and to answer this, the, the great fog in our society. What, what really makes a man? And what, what is it that makes a true woman? Well, nobody really has a good answer for this, I would say. I'd make the claim, except the Bible. And if you listen to the public conversation, you'll find this is never brought up. Even though you have celebrity trans folks coming out and saying, now I know who I am, you know, in the interviews, it never comes out. Never, the question is never asked, what is a man? How do you know that your body is wrong and that you are in fact a man or you are in fact a woman? Never asked. And this is where I think, especially you young people, I need to challenge you. Because if you are feeling the kind of pull of this, and you're feeling like, yeah, you know, maybe I am in the wrong body. You know, you need, to, you need to make sure you first ask this question. And if you're ever in a conversation about this, you want to stop the conversation, just ask the question. What makes a man? What makes a woman? Because the celebrity, the celebrity trans folks don't give us an answer. The academy doesn't give us an answer. You go through a whole gender studies program, get a degree, 
you still will not come out knowing what is a man, what is a woman. So you've got to ask yourselves, are you going to take what, what they say as, as sort of what society is telling us a woman is or a man is? If you have a, a physically male body, are you going to think that you're a woman? Because why? Because you like show tunes? Or because you have an eye for interior design? Are you kidding me? Or because you might like to have your nails done? You think that's what really makes a woman? Or because you like to have nicely matched accessories? Do you think that's womanhood? Give me a break. Or if you are a woman and you think uh, you're, in a, you're in a female body and you think, wow, I really should be a man. Why? If you listen to what we're getting in the media, we're like, why do you know that you're a man? Is it because you like to wear flannel shirts? You think that's manhood? Or because you want to succeed in business? You think that's what it is to be a man? Or that, you know, you like short hair? You know, there was a long interview in Time Magazine just last month with Elliot Page. And you know what never came up? How do you know that you think you're a man now? How, what is a man, Elliot Page? Never asked, not once. You know what they did talk about? How she wanted to have her hair cut short. Oh, I so felt so much better when my hair was cut short. Are you telling me that's what makes a man? Because you like short hair? Give me a, a lunchtime break. At four in the afternoon, <clears throat> I, are you going to model these people? I mean, they, she can do what she wants with her body, but are you going to model that? Are you going to say, yeah, this is what I would do. I'm going to call her brave rather than, you know, she has a problem. She needs help. So you're not going to get an answer. In all these public conversations, you're not going to get an answer, well, now, you're expecting one from me. I'll tell you what. If you kind of, if what I can come up with, if I gather up all that the Bible says about gender, and it, again, it is about relationship. The way that God leads us in the scriptures is to say gender, our gender is about relationship. Here it is. You want to know what a real man is? A real man is one who cheerfully and consistently lays down his life in leadership for the close women in his life for the women with whom he is in close relationship. He ties himself to their growth through taking charge for them, through securing them, through finding the purpose in their relationship. That's it. You want to know what a real woman is? A true woman is one who consistently and cheerfully advances the close men in her life. She ties herself to their promotion, to their, by granting them rest, by granting them authority, by empowering the mission that they have together. And, you know, I'm drawing here, especially from the Apostle Paul, when he lays out the great principles of gender as he does in 1 Corinthians 11 and his reading of Genesis chapter 2. You know, in the very beginning that, that Josh brought us back to this, this morning was talking about the initial creation of humanity. And Paul reads that story of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and says, look, here are the principles of great, of the great principles of gender. And these are the things 
that we need in our relationship to create intimacy. They are what we need to, truth be told, keep marriages erotic. And they tell us who we are. So let's look at these in the psalm. See how the psalm, the song, excuse me, and see how the song brings these out for us. I'll just take two of the two of the principles for us in the interest of time this morning. If you're a husband, if you are the one in that relationship, what are you trying to do as a man? You're trying to apprehend the mission. You're trying to say, what are the goals that we should be having? First, for our marriage and for our family. What are our priorities? What is the direction that we should be going? What are we doing? Where are we going? And in this, in this place, you become the one who makes promises. You become the promiser. And it's a wonderful thing to see. It's expressed kind of in indirect ways and in explicit ways, in different ways, like in the Old Testament. Look at a place like 1 Samuel 30, where, where someone is talking about guys uh, coming back from battle, from a returning army, and just the way he expresses the relationship of that man to his family, to his wife. He says, let that man, each man, lead away his wife and children. Just, <clears throat> just using that that expression for leading away. In the New Testament, you see it right when Paul is expressing, you know, the relationship of the other apostles to their wives and families. He again uses this same, um, this same way of talking about it. He uses this uh, particular verb, parago, which means to lead around. When it's used transitively, he means to lead around. He says, don't, don't I have a right he wasn't married. The other apostles were. Cephas was, Simon Peter. He says, don't I have a right to lead around um, a wife just like the other apostles do? So this is just a way of expressing like the relationship. There's a leadership there. And we see it in the song right from, say, chapter 2, verse 10. He calls her, right? Arise, my love, come away. Even in the beginning of the song, right, chapter 1, verse 4, what does she say? Draw me after you. Okay, um, some translations say, take me away with you. And then as we read on, he tells her to come, to follow, chapter 1, verse 8, follow in the tracks of the flock. Come after. What's he doing? He's leading her. Say twice in, in chapter 2. Again, he says, come Arise, come away. So what is he doing here? He's expressing this masculine principle of leadership, this asymmetry. Not that you as a woman never lead in other areas of your life, but in terms of the relationship, what's going on in your close relationship, this is his specialty. And what are you doing as a man when you're doing this? You're looking at your gifts, you're looking at her gifts, and you're looking at your beloved in this way, for the two, and seeing the way that the two of you should go. You're stepping up in that way. That's what, the, that's what the man is doing on this side of that great principle. What's the woman doing on this side? She's empowering the mission. She's bringing the power to the mission. And because of the God, gifts that God has given her, she's bringing this divine making it happen quality. And, you know, one of the things that's clear through the Song of Songs is this, this woman, this bride, 
is not passive. We see that throughout the song. She is actively engaged. This beloved is calling out to the daughters of Jerusalem. She's actually calling out to him, too. You notice in chapter 1, verse 4, when she's the one who's saying to, to lead is her. She's exhorting the man. And she says, draw me after you. She's actively engaged in trying to make the relationship work as it should. And so in chapter 7, she says, you know, if we're doing this relationship, let's take it out into the fields and the villages. Very active, very active. So, you know, as a husband is growing to apprehend the mission that encompasses the family's gifts and the direction. The wife is growing as the beloved one to bring all that she has to the table to empower that good direction. The promiser and the beloved come together in a beautiful way. And so the best thing that you can do, you know, it's wonderful to hear. We just uh, want to welcome the women back from the women's retreat. Those of you who went on that know it was a wonderful time that you had to encourage one another. And we are so happy to see that going on at Ironworks Church, the uh, small groups that we have here and these retreats that we try to do periodically because we want to be encouraging one another in our same-gendered relationships in this direction. Best thing that you can do, you know, if you are a woman and you have girlfriends, you know, and your friends, one of the best ways you can be a friend is to be asking uh, your women friends, how are you doing in bringing a divine spark as an empowerer in your relationships, in your close relationships with men? How are you doing in that? You know, the best thing you can do as a guy, if you have guy friends, is to be asking one another, how are you doing as a man? How are you doing as a man in your close relationships? How are you doing in this in this kind of principle of stepping up in the places where you need to step up. God himself, that this fire that I'm talking about is the very flame of the Lord. How is this the very flame of the Lord? Well, what she's telling us is that looking at gender through gender to what it points to, we're learning about God. And this is something very important about the Trinitarian God that we have come to understand through the the progressive revelation of the scriptures as he has unfolded himself to us in history, and that there are different persons, but one God. And they are so much the same that they're one God, and yet they're three different persons. Well, you say if they're all the same, how do we distinguish them? How do we identify them? How do we tell them apart? And so people have said, well, maybe it's because they have different characteristics. Like the Father, the, the first one of the Trinity is holy. His epitome is holiness, you know, or truthfulness. And that turns out not to be the case because the second member of the Trinity is truth. His characteristics are the same. The Holy Spirit is just as holy and so the persons are not distinguished by characteristics of God because they all share those characteristics. They all have those characteristics equally. Well, you say, well, then how can we tell them the difference? And here's the answer that came out as, as Christians and Christian theologians wrestled with the scriptures, tried to understand this. It came through a few uh, good theologians and then eventually it was really solidified by the great Augustine. And this is what we believe, by the way. The only thing that distinguishes the Trinitarian persons, the divine persons, is 
their relation to one another. The only thing. The great first one is the first one because he is unbegotten. He, in his personhood, it derives from neither of the others. The great distinguishing, distinguishing um, quality of the second person is that Christ is of the first. He is of the Father. And a lot of things flow from that, but that's basically it. The distinguishment um, essence of the third person is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the two of them together. And these are the, one, these are the things that actually make them different. The great promise or the great beloved, the great witness to the love. This is how they self-identify. So that is why you know yourself through close relationships. You see? The reason why we have close relationships and why we're made in his image is because when he made us in his image and splayed out what was going on inside of the triune God in space and time, it came out for us as man and woman in relationship. This is, how we know, this is why we know ourselves through close relationships. This is why your gender is not a thing that you go off into a room somewhere and say, okay, and I'm going to decide what gender I am. You cannot do that. You determine yourself by giving yourself genderly in relationship. You know, there was a, I'll finish with this, there's a group of uh, guys in a, in a small group one time, they were going around and they were being asked, what's the best compliment that you've ever received? Something that really helped you know, like, like wow, about yourself. The best compliment you've ever received. And they were going around saying a different compliment. And God says, one guy said, best compliment I've ever received is that a pastor was evaluating my marriage relationship. And the pastor said, you know, I'm looking at you and looking at your wife, looking at what you have together. And I'm seeing that she will follow you to the ends of the earth. He said, that was the best compliment he'd ever received. She will follow you to the ends of the earth. And for him, it was the best compliment because what it said about their relationship is that they had reached a place in their trust where they could, they could have that kind of relationship where she would follow. She was trusting of him at that point to be able to do that. And subsequently, interestingly, uh, she did follow him to the ends of the earth <laughs> in that relationship. They actually did go uh, to the ends of the earth. And it was very clear that she was the reason that they could go. So friends, let the gift of gender take you to help you understand your identity and take you to the ends of the earth. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand with me now?